So Josh, why don't you come on up? And would you guys welcome Josh for the first time? John, I'm going to set your iPad right there. He warned me before. He's like, dude, if I forget my iPad up there, just like move it. Don't make it a big deal. So I chose to like announce it that he forgot it. Well, good morning. How is everyone? Good. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Josh. I appreciate the introduction and the invitation as well. Um, I work for Exploit No More, which is a small um, anti-human trafficking organization that sort of serves all of Wisconsin, all of south e southeastern Wisconsin. And th the main way we do that is we have a 24-7 residential shelter facility in uh, the West Dallas area of Milwaukee. Um, we operate 24-7. We serve adult female survivors of, of sexual exploitation and trafficking. We have a lot of counseling on site, a lot of services on site as well. And we kind of serve folks from, from really all throughout Wisconsin. So um, I'm happy about the basketball tournament as well. We appreciate the, the support. And I'm also happy to relive my uh, glory days as well. And, that, and that's actually a good segue. It's a good, it's a good like self-assessment of like, assess your skill level, we'll be assessing ourselves today as we look at 1 John, um, and, and, and we're going to be looking at the topic of love. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, we'll, we'll look at verses 11 to 24. If you want to turn there with me in, in, in your copy of the scripture or your, your phone or your iPad as well. Um, so I will read for us quick the, our passage and then pray for us and we'll kind of see what God has for us. Does that sound all right? Okay, so this is what God's word says, verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet it closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you. Um, for the opportunity to open your scripture, Lord, and, and, and look at what you have for us, Lord. I pray that you uh, convict our hearts and, and that we glorify you this morning as we study your word. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. So as we just kind of hop in here, it's, it's, 
you know, interesting thing just to uh, hop in the middle of a book, you, you know, so, so in order to sort of give us some context and some layout, I'll just kind of talk about 1 John a little bit just as a whole before we kind of get into our, our passage. Um, so 1 John, it was written to a group of churches that had um, been infiltrated by a lot of other teachings, a lot of other worldviews, a lot of other things, and one of those being something called Gnosticism. So, so Gnosticism, uh, the Greek word is, is knowledge. It, it was something that sort of came into the churches and it sought to destroy them by sort of updating things. So like, you know, things like the resurrection or the virgin birth or the atonement or, or things like that were outdated. So the, 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 these, these pushers of this worldview, this ideology, were, were, were sort of pushing that, hey, we know, we have new knowledge that, that maybe ordinary Christians don't have. So, so this kind of divided the, the, the churches, it, it brought a lot of division, it brought a lot of um, uncertainty and a lot of conflict as well. So, so first, so John, the Apostle John wrote this book to reassure the victims of, of, of this ideology, of, the, of this conflict, of, of this um, lack of, of knowledge, lack of assurance, lack of doubt. So, so that's, why, that's why a good, a good portion of the book is spent on good doctrine and right belief, precise doctrine, those types of things. The, the pastor, Warren Wearsby, he said this about 1 John. He said, he said, this letter can be compared to a spiritual staircase because John keeps returning to the same three topics, love, obedience, and truth. Love, obedience, and truth. And, and each way, um, and, and each time he, John returns to a topic, he looks at it from a different point of view. Uh, so the, re- the letter was written to sort of stabilize and comfort uh, believers and reassure them of, of what it is and who it is that they believe in. So that can certainly uh, serve us today and remind us of these pillars as well, love, obedience, and truth. And, and so the, 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 the book of First John is all about Christian assurance. It's about uh, what it is that you know and how it is that you know it, um, who it is that you know and how, and how it is uh, that you know it. So it, it prompts some questions in us like, what is truth? What is good doctrine? What is, how can we be sure if something is good and true and beautiful? How can we be sure that something is evil? What is your view of sin? How do you treat your fellow person? These are all questions that John is prompting his readers uh, to think about. So, so the, the, the way that he does this is he um, offers a series of tests and self-examinations, just like when you sign up for the basketball thing, you're, you'll be self examining yourself on your basketball skill level. We're, we're today examining ourselves on the topic of love and how we're doing uh, with these things. So um, I, I was never a good test taker. I remember a time in high school when we had a really intense English uh, teacher who, um, looking back, was actually a really good teacher, but he, he really put a lot of emphasis on this midterm exam that we were about to take, and, and he basically said, hey, look, whether you pass or fail this Exam, this uh, exam is is basically the the end all be all whether you pass or test or pass or fail the the class. So so he gave us a big thick study packet, something to um, all these things to study, and we were all like kind of really like um, worried about it. And then we show up um, on test day, and and he hands out the tests. This was back when there were still paper tests. I don't even know if they do that anymore. Um, the, and on the test was just one question, did you study, yes or no? And, and so, so it was like a, a sort of a relief, but I sort of felt duped, like, dude, we just killed ourselves trying to study for this, and you, this is what you do. 
Uh, but he was tr- sort of trying to get across the point of, did you prepare, were you prepared, and those types of things. So, so, so this whole epistle is structured um, with a series of tels- tests, with a series of self-examinations, self-assessments. And these aren't gotcha tests, these aren't trick questions that if you, if you get something wrong or you're um, maybe not doing so well in one of the categories, you're not thrown out of the church walls or, or, or of the classroom never to return. Uh, in fact, John, John tells us his goal with these tests in, in the first paragraph of chapter one. He says, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you. He's saying he has seen the risen Christ. He has touched the risen Christ. He has heard from the risen Christ, and we proclaim that to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, so that your joy may be complete. So, so it's not a trick question. It's not a trick test. He, he has a desire that, that we too may know, and, and, and our neighbors too may know, and we may be assured of what it is that we know and who it is that we know. Um, so if you came here to church today, you probably didn't picture taking a test. Um, you were wrong. We, we have somebody handing out the test. I'm just, just kidding. It's not, a, it's not a physical test. But we're going to be taking um, a test centered around this concept of love and, 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 and um, false love versus true love. And, and if you're a note taker, this is sort of the burning question of our passage. How can we be sure we love God? How can we be sure we love God? And I'm going to give you the answer to this first question, and then we'll have some follow-up ones that we'll unpack together. How can we be sure we love God? We can be sure we love God when we love his people. We can be sure we love God when we love his people. And John gives us this transition statement um, flowing in from verse 10 to verse 11. He says, by this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Who does ever, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, so if you're a note taker, again, I have, I have a couple follow-up questions and then sort of an action step and a piece of homework, if you will, to, to take away from here today. So we'll kind of unpack and talk about the passage this way. The first question is, what happens when true love is absent? So what happens when true love is absent? And the next question is, what happens when true love is present? And then point three, we'll kind of talk about this concept of abiding. What does it mean to abide in Christ? So does that sound all right? Okay. So this first question, what happens when true love is absent? And, and John uses uh, this illustration in, from the Old Testament of Cain and Abel. And this is the only... This is, the only, this is the only like blatant, specific Old Testament reference in all of 1 John. And, and he even says here in verse 12, we should not be like Cain. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel um, is depicted in Genesis 4, and it's really the first sibling rivalry in history. How many folks have had a sibling rivalry before? Okay, yeah. Well, they date back a long time, and they're still ongoing, certainly. Um, and, and I think there's a specific reason that, that John uses this, um, this story to, to kind of illustrate his point. So if you want, you can turn back to Genesis 4 or just kind of jot it down later and read it this afternoon. But I'm just going to read a little bit from Genesis 4 to sort of get the heart of it. It says, in, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord got, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was hang, very angry, and his face fell. So Cain's worship was rejected by God, and all of the favor was, was pointed toward Abel. And, and if you can sort of picture the scene here, Cain builds his altar, puts his offering on it. Abel does the same, and, and they're both presented toward God. But one is rejected, one is um, accepted. And so, understandably, Cain was sort of angry and, and, and overlooked and hurt and all of these things. And there's been a lot of debate among sort of scholars of why this is, that, that the, um, why it was rejected, why was the offering rejected. Some say that because it wasn't blood-based, that it, it couldn't atone for anything. Um, but, but that's sort of flawed because they weren't bringing an atoning sacrifice. They were bringing an offering. An offering is worship. It's a tribute. It's thanksgiving. It's, um, it's love. It's uh, devotion. It's all of these things. So that differs from a sacrifice. So, so an offering cannot cover guilt. So, so what else could it be? Why else would, would his offering be um, rejected? Another idea is that it's not the specific type of offering, but, but um, he brought fruit. So that's allotted for in Leviticus chapter 2. That's allowed for. So, so, so Cain's offering of fruit was not the issue. So if we were at this site here, we may have been as perplexed as Cain about why, why was it rejected? What's going on here? And, and I think the fact that we cannot visibly see the issue, that is the point. The issue was not visible, but it was invisible. You, you see, Cain offered um, some of his harvest, but, but Abel gave the firstborn of his flock. So, so that's to say Cain gave half-heartedly, but, but Abel gave his best. Cain gave half-heartedly, but Abel gave his best. Abel gave the firstborn and the fat portions. That's, that's, kind of the, that's like the tastiest parts of, of it, too. So, so, so he, brought, um, he, he brought the firstborn of his flock, which cost him his potential future growth of the entire flock, whereas Cain gave half-heartedly. So Abel's offering was true because it cost him something whereas Cain um, gave this half-hearted attempt. So, so it was the difference between this sort of basic admiration or, or basic generic love for God and a sacrificial offering that's real and true and costs something. And this should remind us that true love should cost us something. And in some cases, it should cost us quite a bit. The, the, the offering that Abel brought cost him his future earning potential, his future growth potential, and all of these things were at risk because he wanted to bring a full and true offering to God. And just by way of brief application, uh, uh, what does this mean for our lives? What does you know, this Genesis 4 mean for our lives? I, th I think it can apply in a lot of ways, but maybe one is just like, you know, when we, maybe when we get a phone call from a friend or a loved one and, and, and we think we're too busy to handle it and maybe somebody else will handle it, maybe we're the ones to handle it, right? Maybe we're the ones to help. Maybe, maybe it cost us whatever event we have that night or whatever. Maybe we're the ones to help. Because from the beginning of Scripture, we see God assess genuine worship versus worship that's half-hearted. 
genuine love versus love that's half-hearted. And that's, that's essentially the thesis of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. What is and isn't acceptable to bring before God. And so God is uniquely interested in the posture of our hearts way more than the activities or church duties we can click off. Now, that's not to say, like, we don't do anything here, right? Someone needs to open the building and do things and all that stuff. But God is uniquely interested in the posture of our hearts while we do those things. And even more so, he is uniquely interested in how we treat people probably almost more than anything else we do on earth. Because Cain here in Genesis 4, we, we should remember he's not presented as an atheist. He's, presented, he's, he's not presented as a, a heathen outside of the church walls. He presented as a worshiper of God. He brought an offering. But the test was not his offering. The test was the position and the condition of his heart. So John uses this Cain and Abel illustration to get his point across of what false love is. And he elaborates more, uh, we should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And, and this is certainly the time we're all sitting here and thinking, well, okay, I'm off the hook because I've never murdered anybody, right? And, and I think some preachers will, like, you know, not give you credit for that. But I'll give everyone here credit for not murdering. Um, I think it's a good thing not to murder. But John reminds us of something deeper in verse 15. He he says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And and whoever, uh, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And I think, think, you know, and I'm guilty of this when I was even preparing, right? We read this and we, we still say, well, I've never murdered. I've also really never hated anybody, right? But what about indifference towards someone? What about gossip towards someone? What about, what about this sort of position of like, that's someone I can take or leave in my life. Maybe they can come into my life, maybe not, but I'm not going to pursue them. It's like, eh, I'm sort of indifferent toward them. What about this position of like, what have they done for me lately? They didn't return my call. They didn't bring enough you know, guacamole to the potluck or whatever. Um, what about these positions? Are we guilty of any of these? I know I am for sure. And John, he, he continues to uh, build on this idea in verse 13. He says, uh, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So here, just like a lot of times what happens in the New Testament is like things are flipped. So he's, now he's transitioning from you shouldn't hate, but the world will hate you, but you shouldn't hate them back. You, you shouldn't hate, but you probably will be hated by the world. You see, Cain was the, and this is the heart of the illustration, Cain was the prototype of the world. And we're warned throughout scripture that the world will hate us. The world will hate Christians. And and, and so Cain heeded the world's commands. He followed the world's commands of self-focused, hate, envy, all of these things, and it resulted in murder. His, His anger turned to murder. So instead of repenting and turning away from himself, he turned back to himself and dug himself deeper. And centuries later, the Pharisees did the same thing to Christ. Instead of repenting and believing the words of the living God, they dug themselves deeper and it eventually resulted in a murder as well. 
So Cain's posture represents the world's posture toward Christ. And this is the posture of the world that I can take control of my own life and God, you should keep your hands out of it. This is the anthem of the world that, 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 that we, we, are, we are told we can do it ourselves. We should live our best life. Our personal happiness should exceed everything else and you should be your truest self. This is the anthem we're taught everywhere we go. And so just like Cain and just like the Pharisees and, 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 and everyone else, we're faced with, with the question, the fork in the road of either, it's either thy will be done or my will be done. Either thy will be done or my will be done. And, 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 and if, if the Bible is true, which it is, when we say thy will be done, we're told the, the, the world will despise us for it. So for us to understand what uh, true love is, we need to sort of unpack what false love is. And, and, and false love, it's, it's self-focused. So, so what's the answer to our first question this morning, what happens when true love is absent? The answer is destruction. It's, it's hate, it's envy, it's indifference, it's gossip, it's church splits, it's family splits, it's heartache. And I think Christians, it's easy for us to, to sort of say like, yeah, like that all is happening out there and it's bad. But a more uncomfortable answer to our first question, what happens when true love is absent is this, when we're entirely focused on ourselves. <laughs> that's, that's what happens when true love is absent. So I'm, um, my family would tell me I'm like a pessimist, so I, that's why like that first point was so long. But the cool thing about the Bible is um, it brings us along the redemptive narrative and the redemptive arc. So what happens when true love is present? Question number two. So in verse 16, John moves, he, he's moving from the reality that false love causes death, destruction, envy, hate, ultimately murder, to this. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And it's one thing to tell someone to do something right. I, I don't have children. I have nieces and nephews. I try to tell them to do something. They don't really listen it's another thing to show them to do something, right? So, so this is what John is doing. He, he's, he's providing an example. He's, he's appealing to these churches. He's writing, say, you should love one another. And the follow-up question to these churches would probably be, how? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Because just like today, I'm sure there's all sorts of opinions and, and theories and, and um, different thoughts on what love is, so it's like, okay, great, we should love one another, but, but how should we do it? And, and so John, he's not ushering in some sort of uh, sappy, emotional-based love. He's ushering in and he's providing an example of the essence of love when Christ laid down his life for us. This is a factual-based love. It's one that's founded in uh, truth and action. And this is the love we're to strive for in our lives, in our churches, in our Christian communities, in our homes, in our workplaces, and all of those things. A love that would prompt you to lay down your life for the other person. And I think we might be saying, well, uh, when we hear this, we, we may think of people in our lives like our, our you know, wives or spouses or loved ones, and we're like, well, of course, I'm, I think I can drum up this love to, to, to die for my, my daughter or son, and I think that's a really amazing thing, right? We even talk about this um, with our pets, right? 
you know, I, I would die for Roscoe or whatever your dog's name is. I have a cat. It's a long story, but I love him. I love him a lot, and I would probably do a lot for him. I've paid, like, big medical bills for him, and, um, and, 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 and that's the, the type of love. But, but we joke and we say this about, like, things we like or people, you know, certainly loved ones we like. I think, you know, it's, it's good to drum up a real thing, a real um, desire for that type of love in our households and things like that. But, but this is what Paul said about Christ's sacrifice in Romans 5. He said, but God shows his love for us that when we were what? Still sinners, Christ died. So, so who did Christ die for? His sin, for sinners, for his enemies. So, so, so it's, a, it's a more difficult thing to say we should die and we should love the people who also despise us, people that are difficult. For our enemies, we should love our enemies, and that's the heart of this example. We are to love, yes, our loved ones, our pets, and all of that stuff, but we're also, too, to love a world that despises what we believe in, right? Just as they despised him and killed our Savior for it. And, and this idea is unpacked in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is the entire um, essence of the kingdom of God. It's al- it always flips what we think, what we think is right. Or, or, or it takes the world's uh, message and it flips it on its head. So, so uh, he's saying you, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's saying, no, no, no. You should love your enemies and pursue those and pray for those who cause you harm. This is the kingdom message. Love your enemies, pray for those who cause you harm. And, and, and from this type of love is where we can do practical things. Share our food, do charity, do goodwill, feed the poor, feed the hungry, heal the sick, play basketball tournaments for exploit no more. We appreciate, we appreciate it. It's from this type of love that, that, that the posture of our heart can stem out of and do um, Good and actually do true and good things and display a true kind of love. And this concept of loving, though, it's not, um, it's not necessarily unique to, you know, this concept of we should love one another and do good is not necessarily unique to the, the Christian faith, right? There's many worldviews and many ideologies that, that tell us we should help people, we should do good. You know, I work in the social work world, and that, and that's a very secular world, and, and it's all about helping people. That's the, that's the reason we have a job, is to help people, right? And, and the answer would be, why? Why should we live this way, you know? And, and I would argue that, that a, a lot of times uh, folks, and I think we're all a little guilty of this, we're doing good for some sort of status, to achieve something, you know? In our day and age, charity is a form of social currency, right? You know? I'm going to do good to achieve this status and look a certain way. But how should Christians view it? The gospel says this, that in Christ, you have attained the highest status. You are a child of God, and it's because of that you should be who you are and follow the example of your Savior, of your Father. And this is why in the New Testament, you rarely see this sort of like behavior-driven directives of like, 
this is how you should love your neighbor. Bring a meal every, two, every, every other Tuesday, and, this, and, and then you'll be able to love your neighbor. It's, no, it, it's, the, it's getting at the heart of it. It says, look who you are in Christ. You are a child of God, and now follow the example of your father and what he has done for you. A few weeks ago, my girlfriend and I were able to have a lunch with Pastor John and Savannah and the kids and um, their dog Ace as well. How many, have y'all met their dog? Okay. Okay, their dog's really cute. Yeah. Um, We were able to have a a lunch with them at their house and we're sitting around the table and we're eating this lunch and um, Nia and I start to notice of like, dude, your kids look like y'all. Do you know that? Like, you know, you know, you know, she has your eyes and, and there's a family resemblance amongst the four of them. And it was really cool to kind of observe and see. And usually when you say that to parents, their follow-up question is like, um, well, yeah, that one looks like me, but this one acts like me. This one has all my traits, you know. A lot of times when people meet my dad and then they, they're like, okay, it all makes sense now how, how the way you are. Um, there's a family resemblance. Jesus said this. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when the world looks at our lives and critiques our lives and our love, hopefully, just hopefully, there'll be a small, minuscule family resemblance to our Savior. By the way we love and we treat one another. And this is not a love that, like, We're the holy ones and we're going to help those beneath us. This is a love that stems from we too are needy, just like you. We were you. We are you apart from Christ. So how does this cause us assurance? When we're striving to resemble the example of Christ, we can be assured. We will not perfect it, but we can strive to live, to love sacrificially as he has loved us. So this is the answer to our second question. What happens when true love is present? The answer is testimony. It's community. It's sacrifice. It's charity. It's good works. It's truth. It's love. It's genuine worship. When, when true love is present, there is truth. And love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 18. So when true love is present, there can be true community true authenticity, true missions, true outreach, true preaching. And if we, don't, if, if, if we as the church and Christians don't sort of get that figured out in our midst, we don't have anything to export to the world, to our communities, to our cities, to our nations. So John, he sort of wraps up verse 18, you know, true love is sacrificial, true love is truth, and action-based, not just word-based. And this brings us to our... Third and our final point, this concept of abiding. It says this in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So, so what commandments here is John talking about? Well, if you, t- if you want to turn or, or kind of read it after lunch, Mark 12, 28, here Jesus is being tested by a scribe. And it says this, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? 
Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. And I think sometimes, I'm guilty of this, we, we, we take command, the word commandment lightly. We don't like being told what to do, right? So, so we're like, okay, you know, which, you know, do we have to do it? But, but God takes commandments throughout the Bible real serious. And, and, and so this is a commandment, meaning it's not optional. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is our task. So, so where does this idea of abiding fit in? John sort of, he sort of tacks it on at the end and it's sort of an interesting um, breakdown. But, but what is abiding? What does it mean to abide? To abide, me it means to remain or stay. It means to uh, it means to be active. It means to continually move toward something, toward a goal. And th- this makes sense that in, in a book all about Christian assurance, that the concept of abiding would uh, be present and talked about. In the, in the end of chapter two, John says, "Little children, abide in Him." And in chapter 3, verse 24, the, the, the Apostle Paul introduces this idea of mutual abiding, him in us and we in him. And, and this is derived from the Lord's uh, allegory of the, brine and the, the, branch, or the vine and the branches, Jesus Christ. And it's this, Jesus Christ is the true source of life. When, when we're disconnected from him, we have no life at all. There is no life to be had apart from him. And, and with this analogy, analogy, John sort of unites all of these themes together he's been talking about in the book. And it's this, John is saying that faith toward God and treatment of people are real closely related. And that's kind of his been recurring theme. They're really closely connected. They're not the same, but they're really closely connected. Because when a, when a, when a sinner trusts Christ, he enters a union with him, right? But we're to cherish this union day by day, moment by moment, by doing what? Abiding in him, realizing that he is the source of our life. And we can have confidence that our prayers are answered. We can have confidence that when we confess our sins, we have an advocate before the Father. We can be confident that we can love one another genuinely when we do what? Abide in him positions our lives really closely to him. So, so what's the action step this morning? What's the big idea? What's the big application for this? How can we love better? Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ more. Cherish him above, above all else. Realize that he is the very source of your breath and your life. And when we do this, we can manifest true love in our churches, in our communities, in our families. And we're going to come to the Lord's table in a bit. And this is a practical way even we can respond to his word and start to abide in Christ. We can uh, come to the table and realize that when we come, we're not doing something for him. Rather, he's doing something for us. He's feeding needy souls who need nourishment. And this supper, it's a family meal. And it's a dress rehearsal meal for one great and glorious one to come. So may we all be assured that when we know Christ and believe in him as he truly is, by knowing him, 
we can have confidence that we are beloved children of God. And from that, we can love one another well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you have um, given us the example of love, Lord, that you sent your son to lay down his very life for us, Lord, for sinners, for his enemies, for those who despised him, God. We pray that in a small way, we try to resemble that in our lives, Lord. We thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for this church, for this community. We pray for Burlington. We pray for Wisconsin. We pray that your kingdom come here, Lord, that people turn to you, the living God, the words of the living God. And we pray that we glorify you in all we do. In your precious name, amen.